Thank you very much, Leah. It's great to be with you this morning. Or is it afternoon? Almost. Uh, just a couple of, um, what, revisions. Um, first of all, Marie, she's actually, I guess you're serving as executive assistant. She drove me out here. Um, but she's a communication advisor and works, works with me in all the speaking and uh, writing things that I do. So she's a wonderful person, and I'm, I'm privileged to have her on our staff. And then um, it would be nice to get the Order of Canada, but I have the Order of Ontario, just to set the record straight. <laughs> and that's a rather long. I can't, whenever I hear the full thing, I sort of think, they, they talk about being humble. I'm not so sure. Maybe we need to notch that down a little bit more. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, thanks to Leah for inviting me to be here at chapel, and I gather some others uh, have a hand in this. Uh, Gary Nelson, who's a great friend. I'm amazed that you're out here this morning to listen to me. That's, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. So I'm going to have to lift my game. <laughs> and then, uh, so I'm just, and I'm grateful that the institution, uh, Tyndale, has been something that's been important to me. You know, when you come into Canada as an immigrant, it's a different experience. You gotta understand, I'm originally an American, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But coming here, what, almost 25 years ago, you don't know anybody other than I knew World Vision people and, and the people who stepped up to invite me into this place, into this country, and to suddenly be connected with different people, different churches, uh, you know, in the leadership role I had at World Vision. Um, I just feel so blessed and so, uh, just honored to be a Canadian. I'm so delighted about that. Well, I want to open with a question this morning. How are you going to be different? Maybe directed a little bit more at, say, the younger crowd here, but it's true for all of us. How are we going to be different? And here's what I mean. Church attendance in Canada is on a modest decline. What is it, 17%, something like that? Every year, it goes down a little bit more. This study, I'm sure, especially those of you doing youth ministry are aware of this hemorrhaging faith uh, analysis that's looked at young people across Canada. And it's really concerning in terms of just young people and their engagement with the church. And, and clearly, according to this evidence, unless we do some things differently, it's going to decline. My generation, baby boomer, we haven't exactly been hitting home runs for you either, I must say. Questions like, how many men will be going to church in the future? I read a book, not long, had a great name, Why Men Hate Church. Now, there's a lot of men here, so and I'm, I'm glad you're going to church, but there's a lot that aren't. And then, what is the impact on families? Another thing that came out of this hemorrhaging, the critical role about fathers in families. Mothers are absolutely critical, but when it comes to the religious piece, there's so many fathers that aren't connected uh, with a faith institution. And then, this is the one for you, I think, those of you who are younger. How do you handle all the toys and technology that we're inundated with? And, because it seems to me, never has there been a time in history to be so busy with something and actually accomplish so little. <laughs> Forgive me, it's a little old man speaking, right? <laughs> but whatever the new expression is, you're going to have to make it your own. And I, the passion to do that amongst younger generation people is really powerful. And I have every confidence that the Lord working in your hearts, it's going, to ha it's going to happen. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's probably going to be different than the way we're doing church now in so many churches. Our scripture today, it, it's, it's a very straightforward one in many ways. It's, it's a whole line. This follows the Beatitudes in Luke. And it's just basically Jesus saying in frustration, I think, to even his disciples at that time, why do you give me all this honor but you don't do what I say? That's a question for all. Are we going to be different? 
We're inside the closure, so to speak. And then he goes on and he tells that, that great illustration of what kind of foundation, what kind of home are you going to build? What kind of place for your life are you going to build? Is it going to be built on something strong and powerful that will withstand temptation, health issues, all, economic, all the things that go on in our personal lives? And he says, if you want to do that, then you better, you better the implication is you better follow my words. One of my favorite Christian authors, he's long passed away, is a man named E. Stanley Jones. He was a Methodist missionary to India, and in my humble opinion, one of the, one of the evangelicals in the 20th century who actually, even though he was an evangelist, he, he had a heart for social action and was willing to go out on the edge. His last book, he was a prolific, uh, he wrote devotional books particularly. He could do one-page devotions like you can't believe. I think he wrote 15 or 20 of them. I have most of them. But his last book was a book called The Divine Yes. And it flows out of a, a verse in 2 Corinthians. It's been always a great encouragement to me, and I'd like to share it with you. It says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him, amen, yes, is spoken by the God of glory. Now, I want to indulge you with a bit of storytelling. I, don't, I haven't done this for a while, but I want to tell you a little bit my own experience of coming to grips with a yes world. And as I said earlier, mine's an American story. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in Wisconsin, out in the middle of nowhere, um, and, and went to a little Pentecostal chapel. I don't think we ever had more than 50 people there. And in fact, we worshiped in a basement, and he never got the top on. The church actually disappeared before we got the top on. So I know it is to worship in a small church. I was in a wonderful environment of Christian people, and I'm so grateful for us. But each one of us, as we grow, and certainly university, I think, and if you go to seminary, those are critical moments in our lives. When we have to, we have to start challenging and facing up, are we going to be different? For me, it was university. Went to a liberal arts university, this Pentecostal kid from a kind of small little background and suddenly thrown into a God-is-dead environment in a secular university. And I struggled with that, but university came in, they were of great help to me. But then the Vietnam War came along, and that was my coming of age. I was a, grew up in a good, solid Republican family, and you, you respected government. What the government said, you had to believe. That was kind of the right thing. Well, that was the beginning for me because more and more as a, in my second year of university, I started to question. And I finally came to the decision that I did not, I was not prepared to give my allegiance to a government that was determined to perpetuate this war that was wreaking havoc in just so many ways. And I realize not everybody agrees with this, but I'm just putting this out there. That's where I was at, and I still maintain that today. But I knew I had to change. I couldn't just go along with the status quo. So my first, you'd love this, my first little demonstration was standing out in Appleton, Wisconsin, where this university was, standing on there holding up a little sign while people drove by. But I got to tell you, that first step was really challenging for me. And I took part in those, when I went off to Fuller Seminary, which is my greatest educational experience of my whole life, I loved Fuller, uh, but it was a white school, almost all white. Here we are sitting in Pasadena, which one of the first schools 
in the, in the United States to integrate. And I got together with a group of other activists and we decided we need to do something about that. I'm proud to say today that you go to Fuller, the Hispanic, African-American, Asian representation, well, it's more like here. And it's changed dramatically. Just a bunch of students and an administration who listened to us, who engaged with us. In my first year student days, just to, <laughs> there's also some humor in this, with two other buddies, we, we did an underground newspaper. It only lasted for about, we ran out of gas, but it was called Balaam's Ass. <laughs> so if you know your Old Testament, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to think that's really bad. <laughs> you might still think it's bad, actually. <laughs> and, and through this whole process, I've got some great stories about seminary that I don't have time to talk about. They, they were just wonderful in terms of learning. Bring, bringing the American Friends Service Committee bombing of the carpet bombing that had been done in Cambodia and plopping it in the Fuller campus was a very memorable experience, uh, I can tell you. Uh, <clears throat> but I also had to rake up with another reality. I had to deal with my faith, which basically, this is being a bit crude and rude, but basically everything would be okay if we could just get everybody saved. That was kind of the mantra. That was the bottom line. If it didn't lead to salvation, you shouldn't be in it. That's the environment that I grew up in. But what I had to learn was that giving, getting everyone to make a decision to, to follow Jesus isn't the only thing. It's not the only end. We still have, this is all going to seem quite quaint to some of you, I realize. We still have an obligation to help someone whether they follow Jesus or not. And just because someone follows Jesus, this is the hardest part, doesn't necessarily mean they care about their neighbor. Just think about that. The examples, we still see this today. Jesus said, love God, but he also said, love your neighbor. And so I began my life's journey of understanding both the holistic and pervasive quality of the gospel. I grew up, got my hair cut, started wearing suits and ties, and needed a job. So I started with World Vision doing audiovisual work. That's how I started. The audiovisual programmer, that was my title. <clears throat> it's back in the U.S. World Vision. So I've been with World Vision now. I'm just celebrating my 40th anniversary, listening to my family surviving together in a community of believers in three different countries, and I've discovered three questions that keep challenging me to say yes. First one, what is the anchor for our yes vision? Basically, we serve a God, we serve a Messiah who embodies the very essence of this idea of yes. God is for us. Both the Old and New Testament, God continues to weep and grieve for the brokenness of this earth and invites us to be a part of his solution. And yet it's difficult sometimes. Just before Christmas, I was in Lebanon with Syrian refugees, and I had a chance to meet a family. They were living in a space about this big with 11 children and a, and a grandma and an auntie looking after them. The two parents were stuck in Syria. They had a little heater in the middle, but no fuel for it. They had, the good news was they had sort of carpeting on the floor and, or bits and pieces of, of blanket and carpet. But I started talking to them. And the auntie was one of the most outspoken that I spoke, that I, that I had a conversation with during my, my week plus, and I was mostly in the Bekaa Valley. And, and hearing her describe the terror of having 10 daughters in the midst of that conflict. And they had left Syria after the, she never identified who, I suspect it was military, broke in, and their standard procedure was to rape the girls and then terrorize the family. And they managed to convince these soldiers that they were on their side 
and they weren't actually harmed, but that was the end. They left for Lebanon after that happened. And she, as she was telling the story, her name was Ekla, she started to break down and cry. As she, she said, it would be better to die than to see one of them defiled like this. One of the children, 15-year-old Benazir, kept her voice. She was very calm and controlled until she told how she watched her father disappear into the background as their car sped away to Lebanon. She just started weeping and crying. And as a, as a person there to try to bring help, we were responding with emergency supplies, working with the World Food Program, but just caught again at the environment that these people are, are just caught up in. And yet, in the midst of that, your, 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 your despair and your discouragement that you can't do enough is always, there's always something, at least in my experience, that comes back to encourage you. In my case, it's the, you know, it's the vision of Isaiah in chapter 65. When a child will no longer be born to a woman and then just live for only a few days. And when those who plant vineyards will eat the fruit. When those who build the houses will dwell in them. When so oftentimes the poor are building the houses for somebody else. Or they're harvesting the, the produce for someone else. But even in the midst of this particular interview, God's always there in profound ways. There was another girl in the room. Her name was Rama. She was 11 years old. She was quieter, but she was drawing. And, uh, and, and she was drawing some beautiful pictures. Butterfly, a multicolored fish, a kitten. And her life was in disarray, but she was choosing to try to find beauty and meaning. I've got a, I think we've got a picture here somewhere. That's the picture. Freehand, 11-year-old. Her sisters were able to get in the Lebanese school, but she wasn't able to, so we're trying to help her, see if we can get her in school. She, I asked her, I said, what's it mean? And she, uh, she was like, artist, she wouldn't tell me. <laughs> it was like, look at the picture. <laughs> Can't you see? And so there I am with her, just... And smiles broke out at that point. I'm, all, I'm always struck with a, it's become kind of almost a quote for me that I use. Our burden for ministry must never be greater than our joy in the Lord. And even in these situations, you have to, there's moments of joy and great relief that you can be part of something. The second question is, what are the expressions of our yes vision? How do we express this yes view? Once again, we can go back to our scripture. It's about loving God. It's about loving our neighbor. That's both simple and yet complicated. And in, in the emergency area of work, the humanitarian response, that's some of the times in which you see the worst, but you also see the best. I was in Haiti, I guess within, what, 36 hours after the big earthquake uh, back in 2010. We were fortunate. Uh, the old, we, we didn't lose a single staff member. We thought at that time, I'll, I'll explain this, uh, only two staff lost homes, and it was amazing in light of all the violence, uh, of the violence of that earthquake, of what it did. But then we discovered our, our humanitarian manager, a, a Haitian woman named Elvire, her daughter um, had died, a, a daughter that she had, she had a, it was an adopted child within her family. And I still recall she was a wonderful person. And we were all telling her, they finally, it was days before they found her body, and so the day of the funeral, she went off to the funeral in the morning, and then she showed up at work in the middle of this disaster at 12 noon. And we were all terrified in, in a sense that she needed to grieve and go home. But she wouldn't. She said, as a follower of Jesus, what I need to do is look after my brothers and sisters here. 
and I will, I'll delay my grief for another time. That's when saying yes really calls for something deep in us. And it's not unique with Haiti. It happens in so many places. And one of the, just one of the complexities, because this is, I'm aware that this is a development talk, I thought something would be interesting. One of our great challenges on the humanitarian side is that the, the, the super big disasters like Haiti generally, generally, not always, it depends on which part of the world they're in, generally they get funded pretty well. But we're now seeing increasing number of medium and smaller scale disasters. And these are the ones that are difficult to fund and support, just to gain support from the public as well as from governments because they just don't get the media coverage of these large-scale disasters. So how can we rest easy and be satisfied in joy and fulfillment when we have people dying every day? But my view is it's that tension is what keeps us on our toes as Christians. It's, I like to call it the good guilt part. Bad guilt makes you feel small. It makes you feel like God's putting a thumb down on you. Good guilt is a reminder of our responsibilities in this world, and we should never run from it. It's the way God created us. And you heard some statistics. I just want to add two more that I think are really, are really powerful as we think about just our response. What our yes response is going to be. Globally, 300,000 women die every year during childbirth. It's the, it's the statistic, and it's the... It's the issue that is the least addressed, which always blows my mind, because all of us were born of a mother. And why on earth we can't get more support to deal with that, I don't know. The good news is it's gotten a whole lot better in the last few years because of, frankly, some of the initiative at the G8 in 2010. And then the other one is that 7 million children die each day because of things like diarrhea and the lack of food. We can all do something. We can all do something. The good news, I wanted to give you some good news. It's not just bleak. The good news is, is that about eight or nine years ago, we had almost 10 million children dying every day. So we're actually making some progress. And in terms of women dying during childbirth, it was over a half a million about six or seven years ago as well. So there's, there's progress being made, but the numbers are still so, still so high. And if, we're, and if we're serious about the yes that God calls us to, it doesn't have to be big things. It's amazing what you can do. There's an incredible story. It's a, I think it comes out of the UK about <clears throat> in World War II, uh, there was a group of, of bombers going out to, to bomb in Germany, and they were being attacked by German fighter planes. And this one bomber particularly found itself unprotected, and a German fighter hit them with at least five or six bullets right into the plane, and nothing happened. They just... They hit the plane, but it didn't, they didn't blow up. It didn't start anything on fire. The crew was able to get back to, their, uh, back to the UK to land, and they were safe, and they couldn't figure out what had happened. One of the mechanics went in and looked at it, and he found five bullets inside the fuel tank, crumpled but not exploded, because these were bullets that had explosives inside of them. Uh, they, he brought these to the pilot at the barracks, and the pilot started opening the shells into the crew's amazement, found each one empty of gunpowder. Inside one was a tiny wad of paper. When he unfolded the paper, he found a note which read, We are Polish POWs, forced to make bullets in factory. When guards do not look, we do not fill with powder. <laughs> Is not much, 
but as best we can do, please tell our family we are alive. Okay, just take the powder out of the bullets, and it's a step in the right direction. The other comment I would make on this divine yes business is, I have to say this in the right way, cultivate your holy discomfort with the way things are. In other words, you need some outrage. Outrage is not a bad thing. Outrage at the way things are. It's especially important for young people. That's what drove me when I was at seminary. I just could not understand how we could put up with this. I just could not understand. And, and we need some of that. We need some of that. Out. Dis, and dissatisfaction with the way things are. If you read change management books, that's what makes us change, is because we're so upset. That's, what the, that's why the prophets were always so negative. In most cases, they were saying to people, this is bad. You have to do something. Don't just sit there. And that's what we need in our lives as well. Because there's so many things that want to distract us and convince us that if we're just distracted, we've somehow, it's a solution. And of course, it has to be, it has to be, our, our outrage has to be focused. It, it still has to be disciplined. I think probably one of the best examples in Jesus' life, it's, I'm sure it's common to all of you, it's just where he kind of blows his stack in the, in the temple with the money changing that was going on. And there's lots of commentary comment about, you know, is it because they've defiled worship? Is it because they've made money the center, money making the center of worship? I think all those things are right. And he just, he's so outraged that people have let the wrong thing become the actual part of the worship of him. And I would also like to think, I also think it's another point where, where Jesus is clearly saying, I'm the king of the world. This temple, this temple is my temple, and it must be honored and respected in the right way. A theologian, Karl Rahner, says, the number one cause of atheism is Christians, those who proclaim, their, who proclaim God with their mouths and deny him with their lifestyles is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Jesus kept it Peter at the end of John to make this point. He said three times he asked Peter. Three times Peter said yes. And it was feed my lambs. In other words, do something, Peter. Yes ain't good enough. You have to do something to verify your words. We face challenging times in the international development sector Runaway inflation, food prices, loss of arable land, more disasters, injustice, and it, it, it's even dangerous. It just seems, I guess it's only two years ago, we, we lost seven staff members killed in, Afghan, in Pakistan just because they were promoting education of girls and fighting for a brighter future for all their children. They were all Muslims working with us. They gave their lives. They gave their lives working with a Christian organization to try to help change their people. One of the survivors, a woman, young woman in their culture, she went to her father, because that's the tradition to ask him. She said, I want to continue to work with this Christian organization because they're making a difference amongst the people that, that I serve and want to be. He gave her his permission after the killing of all the others, and she'd narrowly escaped with her life. A yes has consequences. What will they be for you? The last question deals specifically with the cost of a yes vision. We must remember that we're on, a, we're on a mission. We don't need dull church services, lukewarm Christian leaders, or development practitioners. We need people who have a profound sense of mission in their lives. 
Some of you, if you have any knowledge of World Vision, I think the greatest quote from our organization comes from our founder, Bob Pierce. He said, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. There's kind of a freight train of meaning in that, in terms of what's important in our lives. For me, I feel every story that I hear when I'm interviewing, engaging with people that oftentimes are so much at the edge of society. There, there's a sense, I think many aid workers feel this. I feel like all the people I've ever talked to are standing behind me. And every time I'm speaking, they're back there saying, you know, what's your, what's your voice like? What are you saying? We've shared our stories with you. You, you, you have an obligation to share that story. That picture I got from Ron, I said, I want to take a picture back to Canada. Which one would you give me to take back? Would you give me one of your pictures? And she didn't even think twice. She just handed it to me and said, take that one. So it's a cry against low-risk Christianity. That's what we're talking about, I think. And it's not easy because we have so many distractions. But the results can be so transforming. One of my heroes in World Vision is our national director in India, a guy named Jayakumar Christian. What a great name, right? Jayakumar Christian. Jaya is brilliant. He's got a PhD from Fuller. Um, he's, he's worked frontline, frontline development work. All their workers live in the communities where the poor live, in the most, some of the most forgotten places in India. But I remember him sharing a story with me with one of a, it was a, it was a Hindu village where we work. And people began to come to, to, to Christ in faith. And when they were asked, they pointed to one of the World Vision workers and they said, because of that person and who he is and what he's done for us. In other words, our worker there, he saw this village through Jesus' eyes and he served. And they responded because they saw Jesus' righteousness in him. Just a little reminder from history. Thomas Clarkson, he was a 25-year-old divinity student at Cambridge in 1784. He decided to write an essay on slavery in order to win a Latin prize. Purely an academic exercise. He decided to write on slavery. He interviewed people who had seen slavery in the West Indies, read the papers of a slave merchant, and did research. And he was horrified. He actually won the prize with his essay. And then, here's how the story goes. On his way to London, after his very illustrious career at Cambridge to gain his church appointment as an Anglican, Anglican, Anglican pure, uh, curate or priest, he dismounted his horse. Here's the quote from his journals. Coming in sight of Wade's Mill in Herefordshire, I sat down disconsolate on the turf by the roadside and held my horse. Here a thought came into my mind that if the contents of the essay were true, it was time some person should see these calamities to their end. 25 years old. His passion was a landmark day in modern human rights. Others, like the Quakers, who actually asked uh, Clarkson to join them, were working already. But Clarkson, it was later, was joined by much better known and more influential Wilbur Wilberforce and was the one who moved it forward and helped bring the anti-slave movement into England. But it was that young man, Clarkson, who actually, they said he traveled, they estimated something like, it was a huge, huge amount, I'm forgetting, I'm having to do my memory, just thousands and thousands of kilometers on horseback or walking 
to gather and recruit people all over the UK. And I guess he didn't far fall from the tree, uh, far, uh, fall far from the tree. It said that Clarkson's father was an Anglican priest who would go out at night with a lantern in hand and visit the poor in his parish to offer assistance and encouragement. Sometimes it's easier to think about doing it than to actually do it. A last experience, and I was, I was in uh, Tanzania. Her name was Paulina. She was a grandmother with AIDS in Tanzania. Her children had died of AIDS, so she was raising her two granddaughters who were five and ten years old. They lived in a broken-down hut, very simple mud walls and a shabby grass roof. I can still remember it. No running water, of course, no electricity. But then to just sort of gild the whole situation, she had leprosy. So she only had, let's see, she had a thumb and a little finger on each hand. Her toes were pretty much gone. She was a tiny woman to begin with, and her feet with no toes were about this long. But she was a Christian. Went to church every Sunday, prayed. She managed to provide food for her daughters by begging at the local market in the little community. She would usually make about 75 cents a day. Her granddaughters weren't in school. They were wearing very shabby clothes. They were undernourished. So we met with her. Our program was, our area that we were working in was coming into her area. And we talked about how we would get the girls back in school. The community was, doing, was going to form together. Uh, we also said there needed to be, she needed better housing. So it was, it was a great moment. Just a wonderful moment to feel like you're part of a solution in someone's life. But when it came time to go, whenever I can, I have to be sensitive about this because we're working in lots of uh, interfaith situations, but I, I knew she was a Christian and, and uh, I said to her, I, I, could, could I pray for you? I'd like to pray for you and your family. She put her hand up and she said, no, I'm praying for you. We had a film crew with us. We just stopped filming because it was just, it was clearly becoming something that was just so private and magnificent. So I said, yes, we're guests here. And so she began to pray. She thanked God for Canadians who were helping, were giving, were concerned about them. She asked God to protect us as we flew back to Canada. And she asked God to protect her granddaughters. She completed the prayer without ever asking for anything for herself. Her vision of what was important was just astounding to us. We were all standing there with tears running down our face. I'd like to leave you with just one more thought as I close. Being a yes person is ultimately about hope. And hope is tied to transformation, and it's also tied to the end of our lives. Our former chair of our board, Denny Senamore from he said some of this, so I'm not sharing something that's, that he would, be, would not want me to share. His wife died of cancer about three months ago. She was diagnosed and lived another five years. She was a radiant, wonderful Christian woman. And her, one of her last words to Denny, coming towards the end, she sat up and Denny said at the, at the funeral, he said, she pointed her finger at me and she said, don't you blame God for this. She said, I'm okay, I'm ready to go. And then I was talking to, to Denny on the phone just privately, and he was explaining just some of the issues that go through when you lose your partner like that. It's just hard to imagine. 
And he said, I thought this was so plaintive. This is, I think all of us as Christians can identify with this. He, he was struggling with why God would allow this and then this. And then he just said, but who else is there to follow? Who else is there to follow? The why. Why is all this so important? I just want to hammer it one more. It's so important because there's a little girl somewhere wondering where her next meal is going to come from. There's a terrified mother wondering who's going to wreak havoc on their little shack and destroy their lives. There's a father who's ashamed because he can't find work to provide for his own children. There's a community trapped by lies that continue to keep people poor and oppressed. And like all of us, that community is longing to know the loving God who loves and cares for them in the midst of death, disappointment, and loneliness. I wish one thing for you, that you will find your anchor in Jesus that offers us the way to something that will change our lives forever. Will you love? Will you forgive? Will you serve? Will you see your greatest strength in your brokenness? Will you stand strong in the power of the Holy Spirit? We have an anchor. We have a mission. God help us all. Thank you.